you, you, I mean, I know there's a lot of great options on Wednesdays at 11, so um, let me kind of reframe just a little bit of what we talked about yesterday and uh, why it is that it's important that we talk about it. It's kind of crazy. I'm a little bit flustered right now because everything I had to do to get here, there were long lines to do it, so let me kind of settle myself down and let's start off with a prayer and then I'll start talking. God, we recognize that you are in this place with all the hugs, with all the um, warm, friendly conversations, with all the genuine, thick friendships that are here when we gather together in this place every year. Uh, we are realizing we are fellowshipping in and with the Holy Spirit as we fellowship with one another. God, would you now speak through the book of Proverbs, again, a fresh word of wisdom for all of us, wherever we're at in life. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Yes or no? They are the two most important words in the English language because they open up new plot lines. They set new trajectories. They're the most powerful words because they define what we will be known for, what we will do with our lives. It determines what kind of job you'll have, what kind of career you'll have, how many hours you'll spend in that career, what kind of priority you will make of your career in, in relationship to other things in life, like family or um, other relationships. They're going to, yes or no, will determine your um, character in moments of stress. So yesterday, we started a series about wisdom. Specifically, what I wanted to do in this series, since there's a lot of preachers and teachers and, and church leaders that come to Harbor, I wanted to kind of give you a resource for thinking about wisdom and how to preach wisdom or teach wisdom. I, I told the people yesterday that <clears throat> a few years ago, a friend of this program and a, a friend of mine, uh, this really well-known theologian named Scott McKnight, when I asked him a few years ago, what's the one series that I should preach that most preachers aren't preaching? What is the one thing preachers should talk about? He said, you should talk about wisdom. And I originally thought that was a dumb idea. Because I didn't know what it looked like to preach wisdom. And <clears throat> since, since he told me that, and he's a really smart dude, I started looking into it. And I realized how helpful the tradition that we actually have is, how <clears throat> the Bible is trying to speak a word into our lives. And not just, <clears throat> not just our theology, but our like Tuesdays. Like what we do on our daily lives. The Bible lives down at that level. And so I told you yesterday I wanted to give you a few examples. And I was, it was going to be money, sex, and friendship. Um, but I don't have enough time to do justice to all of those. Uh, especially with what I want the turn I want to make at the end. So instead I'm just going to do friendship and sexuality. The first example I want to talk about is friendship. Because one of the surprising things about the book of Proverbs is how much it talks about friendship, how important it is to have um, good friends. And, and the definition of, of friends is things like people you can trust to tell you the truth, tell you the hard things about life and about yourself that you don't necessarily want to hear. So, you know, there are famous proverbs that you all grew up hearing if you grew up in church, like, you know, as iron sharpens iron, as one proverb about friendship. But the thing about people who lived in that culture, they know when iron sharpens iron, that means there's friction. 
Yeah, sparks. There, it's it's difficult. There, you know, uh, the uh, a friend multi an enemy multiplies kisses, but a friend, um, uh, like a, a a friend, you can trust the wound of a friend. That's one of the proverbs. What kind of friend wounds? Well, a good one. That's the point. But then the flip side, and this is the point uh, that I, I want to lean into on the friend, friendship thing. Just as much as there are, you need good friends in life and you need to invest in those friendships, there's also people you don't need to be friends with. And I, I know as soon as you hear this, unless you're a parent, when you hear, if you're a parent when you hear this, you're like, yes, that's exactly right. But when people hear somebody like me or a religious leader stand up and say, there are people you don't need to be friends with, the immediate pushback is, well, that's being judgmental. And the way I heard this one preacher say this is, no, it's not. There is a difference between having good judgment and being judgmental. When you're being judgmental, you're setting yourself up as a judge. You're looking at other people and you're you know, judging their behavior. and all. That. But having good judgment is something else altogether. Having good judgment is evaluating honestly yourself in light of my past, in light of the things I've struggled with in the past, in light of you know, my addictive behavior, in light of the thing, you know, in light of my present, and in light of the person I want to be in the future. Is this friendship good or bad? Uh, the preacher I heard this from, he had this line where he said, and I like this line, I've, I've used this line, I'm not emotionally mature enough to be in that relationship. I, I really like that because that's an evaluation of myself and not of the other person. Um, when, par when parents look out, as a father of five, when I look out at the friends that my kids are making, um, I am paranoid. Because, and I realize my parents were that. My parents were paranoid as they were looking at uh, um, the people that I was hanging out with growing up, and for good reasons. Um, can you remember, I mean, if we're just to open this up and pass the mic around, can you remember some of the stuff that your friends talked you into doing? When I was a freshman at Harding University, they put me in the um, football dorm because that made sense to somebody. <laughs> so I was on the third floor of the football dorm, and at some point uh, I was having these guys over for uh, like, <laughs> and you know, I was homeschooled my whole life, super sheltered, all that stuff. And I was like, hey, you guys want to watch The Lion King? I've already watched it this week, but I could watch it again. You all want some Capri, Capri Suns or anything like that? And anyway, they were like, actually, we have this idea that we could do this bonding thing where we could, we got this propane torch, we could heat up a coat hanger and like brand each other. And I was like, yeah, or we could do The Little Mermaid because I haven't seen that in a while. And <laughs> anyway, so they talked me and some other guys into doing this. And I have on my arm a brand a well of a cross because I'm a Christian. I have an, a, a, and and for weeks I was reminded of how stupid and foolish I was. I had to go home and it was still hurting like three weeks later. And so I had to tell my dad because I was like you know wasn't moving very well. And I said, Dad, I burnt this cross into my arm. And do you think Mom's gonna be mad? And he goes, No, she's not, because you're gonna wear short shirts or sh uh, long sleeve shirts for the rest of your life around your mother. She's never going to know about it. I have this friend, uh, Bad Brad, who um, some of y'all may know Bad Brad, but Bad Brad, uh, we were in Harding together, and he's moved every place we've been. 
um, Fort Worth, Abilene, and just back to Little Rock now. So lifelong friend, super, super fun dude. Um, when we were in college together, I led a spring break to Nashville where, you know, the pagans are. And at one point, Bad Brad, uh, we announced, we were doing this VBS for all these kids, and we announced that if we could get 100 kids, we, Bad Brad, would get a mohawk shaved into his head. Which we did not get Bad Brad's permission to do that, but, you know. So, uh, anyway, on the last night of the VBS thing, um, we have 98 kids. And so Bad Brad just kind of, you know, breathing a sigh of relief. And then some quick-thinking college student grabbed the puppets and held them up and said, you going to count me? Are you going to count me? And then what happened next was just VBS magic because the kind of the whole group of kids coalesced around Bad Brad and dragged him into the fellowship area where we give this dude a forced mohawk, which is really fun because you haven't lived until you've given someone a mohawk and they're trying to like fight you while doing it. And then Bad Brad, he, was, he had driven the bus with uh, like 15 of these kids, so he kind of brought his own destruction to the party. Um, he had driven a bus and he had to drive them back afterwards. And um, he was in Nashville, this was pre-cell phones. He was a five-lane highway, he had to turn left. He's got a van full of these inner city kids. He goes to turn left and the van, if it's old van it breaks down. And so Bad Brad is with all these kids who are yelling at him and upset because they got to get home. And he's trying to wave down a van or he's trying to wave down help and nobody stops for like an hour because silly Bad Brad, <laughs> you've got a mohawk. <laughs> like here's the way, and those were his good friends that did that to him, by the way. Here's the way the, uh, the book of Proverbs say it. If you could put that up. Next slide. Walk with the wise and you will become wise. But a companion of fools gets a mohawk. <laughs> what you'd expect for it to say is walk with the wise and become wise. Walk with fools and you become foolish. But it doesn't say that. What it says instead is walk with fools and the shrapnel of their life is going to blow up and hurt you. It's not that you're going to become foolish, although that might happen as well. You're headed in a foolish direction. Walk with fools and you will get hurt. A fool is someone, and this is kind of what we talked about yesterday, a fool is someone who does not connect their past with the present with the future. The big word is telos in, in Christian tradition, like the Jewish and Christian tradition. Telos is an ultimate aim or object. It's where we get the idea of telescope. And what wisdom is trying to get us to do is ask the question, if I made this decision for the rest of my life, would I like the direction that it's headed? That's a different question than is it right or wrong? Because that's, that's a wrong grid for, for you to you know, run through your relationships with. Is this a right or wrong friend? No. Is, is, this, is this a step? Is this friend going to take you in a step in a wise direction? So here's the question I want everybody to kind of soak in for a while, and especially pass on to the next generation. This is it. Your friends are your future. Do you like your future? Because you, you probably heard the kind of um, cliche, you are the average of the five people that you spend the most time with. But Proverbs has been saying that for thousands of years. You will become like, you are headed in the same direction as the people you spend your time with. And you know who gets this? Every 12-step group in the world. 
right? They know that if you spend a lot of your time with people who have substance abuse problems, there's a chance you will develop a substance abuse problem. And if you're wanting to um, be sober, one of the best ways to do this is have regular interactions with people who are on the same journey with you. Um, I heard a preacher give four warning signs that I thought were really, really helpful for when you might be spending time with the wrong group of people. The first one is this. When it dawns on you that your core group is moving in a direction that you don't want your life to move in. When people, where people are headed is a good indicator of where you're being led in. Number two, when you feel pressure to compromise. You know what this feels like, right? When something that you had never really considered uh, doing before becomes a live option. When all of a sudden you start thinking, I, I could do that. Maybe that wouldn't be so bad after all. Maybe I would just hype that up. Number three, when you find yourself thinking, I'll go, but I won't participate. Would you buy this from any teenager, right? Then number four, when you hope that the people you care about don't know your whereabouts. That one is the most uh, helpful for me because I've thought this several times. Not because things are right or wrong. And that's the point about wisdom. This is what we talked about yesterday. If you think everything through the grid of it's right or wrong to spend time with them or right or wrong to go to that place or right. But if you don't want people who love you, who you love, who have your best, um, your, your, your best uh, interest at mind, if you don't want them to know what you're doing, there's, that's a red flag. And one of the reasons I care about this is because, you know, I know there's a lot of ministers in here, you live on the consequent side of equations. We have spent time in people's living rooms and in our office and, you know, at, across the table at lunches and dinner, listening to people's foolishness. In fact, one of the things, and I don't, I'm not saying this is a good thing uh, that Leslie, my wife and I do, but um, since I've been doing this for like 17 years, I've had plenty of opportunities to see people do really foolish stuff. And so, I don't know, a couple of times a month, I'll come home and at dinner, I'll strip all the details and names and all that stuff, but I'll tell our kids what I heard that somebody did. And the moral of the story is always the same. They should have listened. They should have listened to their mommies and daddies. Because, and, and it really is some level of that. Because there are people in your life who love you and care about you, who see what you cannot. Because that's the thing about wisdom. No matter how wise you think you are, there are people around you who can see things that you have uh, um, blind spots to. Okay, so we're going to close out this section on friendship by, by this move that Richard Beck, who is a great friend, elder at the church that I just uh, was working at, Richard Beck has this, this move that I think is really, really important for all of us when we have that instinct of, but I don't want to become like that. So the Proverbs can come across as really judgmental, but I think, it, I think it's having good judgment. However, if it ends there, it's problematic. So yesterday we talked about how Jesus is once cornered by the religious leaders, the Pharisees, about how, you know, um, you're, you're hanging out with all the wrong people. And Jesus says this in Luke chapter 7. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And he, 
But he says, wisdom is proved right by her children. In other words, what Jesus is saying is wisdom means time will tell. Wisdom is not an absolute. You can always make a counter argument to it. If you want to win the argument, wisdom will let you win the argument, but you will lose at life because you can out-argue wisdom, but you cannot outrun it. Wisdom always has the last word. But Jesus is saying, I am a friend of sinners. And you're going to see the wisdom in that. But I want you to pay attention to what, what point in Jesus' life this is. He's like 32, 33 years old. Jesus wasn't a friend of prostitutes when he was 15. Right? Jesus was, and this, this is Richard Beck's great, really substantial point. Holiness, true Christian holiness, leads back to other people. So the reason it's really important for me not to develop an alcohol addiction is not so that I can just feel good about not having that addiction. The reason it's really important for me to not have like a, a porn addiction or a, a sexual addiction is not so I can feel good about being holy. It's so I can be around people, right? It's, it's so I can be holy so I can be around those kind of situations, but not contribute to the problems of those situations. Because true Christian holiness does not uh, set you apart for no reason. It sets you apart to lead you back towards the people that God loves. Okay, so that's um, an example of Proverbs, what it says about friendship, and the way Christian story kind of subverts that, but also leans into it. <clears throat> and the next example I want to give is sexuality. Remember, we talked about this yesterday. The book of Proverbs is, it's like a, um, what it would have been in Jewish tradition is a training ma manual for parents to pass on wisdom from one generation to the next. So fathers sitting down with their sons, mothers sitting down with their daughters. And one of the things Proverbs is trying to say is that our bodies have always mattered more than we think. And again, to preachers and ministers and uh, church leaders, you live on the consequence side of equation. Um, you, I bet there's plenty of people in this room who have tried to talk people out of doing very foolish things because their immediate desires were you know, telling them, but I really, really want this. Uh, and it's not because you don't do that because you're trying to talk people out at living, you know, dull, bland, uninteresting love lives. It's because you can see in that moment what others cannot, that there's trouble ahead. And, and the, the shrapnel of their, their unwise decisions is about to blow up, and it won't just hurt them. It will hurt other people in their life. So Proverbs anticipates that. Actually, it talks about that several times in the book of Proverbs. None more than Proverbs chapter 5. So this is a dad sitting down with his son, and he's trying to um, speak a word of wisdom into his son's sexuality. He's trying to forecast. There will be, th th this has a lot of promise and peril. And it sounds like this in Proverbs chapter 5. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Turn your ear to my words of insight that you may maintain discretion and that your lips may preserve knowledge for the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey. Uh, by the way, remember, this is, not, this is not gendered as much as it is a father talking to a son. You can switch this whole thing for mothers talking to their daughters. And her speech is smoother than oil. 
But in the end, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her path, the direction that she's headed on, wander aimlessly, but she does not know it. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. Keep to a path far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you lose your honor to others and your dignity to one who is cruel, lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich the house of another. At the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and body are spent. You will say, how I hated discipline, how my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or turn my ear to my instruction. And I was soon in serious trouble in the assembly of God's people. Um, So what the father is actually trying to say is is warning his son about behavior that people all across the world have been engaged in every day since this was written, right? Sometimes it's uh, men, sometimes mostly by men, and sometimes by women. But uh, what the father is trying to say is what you have at stake. You will lose your honor, you will lose your reputation, your money, any community and trust that you've earned. And what's interesting is Proverbs does not focus on the fact that having an affair is wrong. It presumes that, but it doesn't focus on that. It focuses on the fact that it's really, really stupid. It's really foolish. Falling for her will ruin your life. And that language of the path, dozens of times in Proverbs, it's, um, it, it's warning you of the path because... Now tell me if this doesn't sound ring true to you. That doesn't happen in one moment. It's dozens of decisions over lots of days. It's one Facebook message, one innocent text, one decision at the time. And listen, none of them are wrong probably, at least up until the end. It's just one questionable direction-setting decision at a time. And then look at what, right after this, is what the dad says to um, the son, drink water from your own cistern. By the way, this is super erotic. If you, if you knew what the actual Hebrew was trying to say here, it would make everybody in this room blush. Running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. Is it getting hot in here to anybody else? We didn't read this a lot in the little 10-person church I grew up in. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? For your paths, your way, same word, are in full view of the Lord. There is no private browsing when it comes to God. And he examines all your past. The evil deeds of the wicked ensnare them. The cords of their sin hold them fast. For lack of discipline, they will die, led astray by their own great folly. Here's the thing I want you to see about the wisdom tradition in Proverbs. A lot of us grew up in churches that thought, or you know, subtly communicated, God's great command when it came to sex was, don't. But it's not. It's, it's right here in the middle of Proverbs, this dad or mom telling their kid, Make sure you enjoy the spouse of your youth. Don't somehow just manage not to get divorced, but rejoice in your wife, rejoice in your husband, and arrange your marriage in such a way that you can take delight in each other. Because, and this is, this is in your Bible. One of the great things about, you know another book that's wisdom tradition? 
Song of songs. You know how we talk about king of kings? Jesus is the king above all, greater than all kings. That's what the term song of songs. This is the greatest song of all. And you know how it opens? The first line of a book in the Bible is, let him kiss me full on the mouth. Which is an awesome way to start a book in the Bible, right? Uh, and that's wisdom tradition. This is like God delights in us as we delight in each other. God doesn't look away when a married couple make love. But something this powerful also has a lot of peril. And I know that these days it's easy to think, man, the church sure focuses a lot on sexual sin. But then you start to realize, well, hold on. The world we live in is focusing on it. Because I think, and by the way, the church overemphasized, overtalked about this. I get that. But now all of a sudden, the last couple of years, we're starting to realize something, when sex goes wrong, it has profound, disturbing, and disruptive effects on everything. Which is why, in the very next chapter, the son says it a little bit more memorably. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. What the... Dad is telling the son is, you are inviting great pain and harm into your life. I bet there's a lot of church leaders here, and there's a lot of stories. Stories that you know of people you love. After the smoke cleared for every single person who's gone through something like this, and I, I, um, I have genuinely had my heart broken dozens of times because I care about people. I'm not... It's not, there's not uh, that German word of a little bit of joy at other people's misery. Never with this. After the smoke clears, I've never had anybody say it was worth it. A couple years ago, the New York Times ran a famous story on the movie producer Harvey Weinstein. Uh, this man who was incredibly influential in so many areas of movie making and lots of actors and actresses life was also responsible for the devastation of many many women's lives so when Alyssa, Alyssa Milano one actress tweeted out if you've ever been assaulted harassed just respond by this hashtag me too and the rest is history I mean 85 countries over 200 million times it's been shared from conservatives to liberals to churches to comedians. Every industry has come to grips with or is coming to grips with the reality of both the power and the peril of our sexuality. And that's what made Sarah Barton's sermon yesterday so powerful. Because the world has never needed to see the Christian sexual ethic more in a time when it is the most weakest. It's often, Christian sexual ethic is often seen as oppressive and rigid and something only for fools. And I've believed that myself. I've preached that myself. But it turns out there might be good reasons for something this powerful to have strong lines and bright, bright lines and strong boundaries around it. And maybe we need to revisit what those reasons are. For the past few decades, we live in a world that's used terms like casual sex, and casual sex has liberated us. And we've had the best sounding arguments for it. We've called the Christian sexual ethic prudish, but I think a fair question is, if it's so liberating, why has it produced so many regrets? 
Even the term casual sex is foolishness. It's like saying a casual lap full of coals. Describing sex as casual is like describing the Grand Canyon as a hole in the ground. Denim is casual. V-necks are casual. But sex is never casual, and it can only be viewed that way. Listen, church, it can only be viewed that way when we have dehumanized each other so much that we no longer see people. We see objects to use. And that's, the fo- that's what Proverbs has been saying for a long time. We, we become a foolish society. And, I mean, think of the examples of this. Listen, consent is important. But nobody wants just consent. You want to be loved and cared for, not just for one part of your body, but for all of you. Nobody wants kids feeling insecure and abandoned. And listen, if this was off mic, if I was just talking to you, I would, I would tell you stories about how every part of my life, my own life, has been totally turned upside down by this. I would tell you about my friends who part of the tug for me to go back to Arkansas was doing so many of my friends' funerals because they got hooked on stuff in their teenage years and 20s. And to a person, every single one of those funerals, I can trace back to a parent leaving their spouse for somewhere else. So, again, if this was off mic and this wasn't being recorded, I would tell you some more of those things. But I don't think I need to. Because I think you've got those stories. You have people in your own life who have those stories. Remember a year and a half ago when there was a church in Memphis, and it was this uh, widely spread, you know, a rumor came to the surface that the preacher at this church had had um, sexual assault Um, or at least had a relationship that was inappropriate with a minor who was like 16 when he was um, a student minister intern at his previous church. And when that came out, it was right in the heat of Me Too moment. This was the first big church too moment. And the elders stood up on the day they announced, yes, these allegations are true, but we're going to stand behind our preacher. And the church gave a standing ovation. And I knew in that moment, because, again, this has impacted every part of my own life and my own family's life, specifically churches, I immediately knew what they were doing was foolishness. And it sounded good, and it felt good, and sounded right at the time, but it was a church that had a lap full of coals in their fire, and they were pretending they were having a barbecue. Because it had not dealt with the full weight of sin. Listen. Love covers over sin, but love does not cover up sin. And that's, that's the book of Proverbs. It is the kind of at least be honest with the power of this. That's what the, um, that's what the father is telling the son or the mother is telling the daughter. Um, that's just scratching the surface. If you're going to preach or teach this, there are so many more memorable parts of Proverbs with this, but now I want to subvert the wisdom tradition in the name of Jesus. We talked about how um, Proverbs, you know, really needs to be read in light of the story of Solomon. Solomon prays for wisdom, and then immediately after he gets uh, this moment where uh, two prostitutes come in, they 
one baby has died, the other one still has a living baby, and Solomon ultimately has to make a decision when there's no right or wrong decision to make. That's a great example of wisdom. And Solomon makes a wise decision. He was wise. He was, in the words of the Scripture, the wisest man who had ever lived. And he led Israel <coughs> to her greatest moments. Israel lived in, in shalom and peace, and it was so great that other people uh, started coming from other nations to see what it looked like to live in this kind of shalom. Um, the most famous example of that was, somebody tell me, what was the most famous example? Queen of Sheba, that's right. She comes from her country just to see what the secret was, and then she says this, and this is just a few chapters after that wise decision in 1 Kings 10. She said to the king, The report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true, but I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth you have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your people must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel. He has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. Um, which, by the way, this has always been God's hope for the people of God. That by the way we live together, by the way we share life together, we would show the world what God was like. That we would live a wise life, that we would live in wise community. This is what Israel is supposed to be. They're, they're called to be a city on the hill, Right? a counterculture for the good of culture, until they aren't. There's a, actually a time in Jesus' ministry where he brings this little story up. It's actually a time when everything seems to be going great. Uh, the religious uh, people, or there's, there's a ton of religious people following him, and Jesus turns around to them, and basically, you know, he's got a ton of people, Jesus turns around to them and calls them a wicked generation, which is not what religious people like to hear. They're like, man, we could be doing other stuff today. We're like here because we're trying to pay attention to what you're saying. And Jesus turns around and calls them a wicked generation. And then he brings up this story. He says, the queen, the queen of Sheba came from the ends of the earth to discover wisdom. But at the day of judgment, she's going to rise up and judge you. Because there is one wisdom, in, God's wisdom in, in a body. There is one greater than Solomon, Jesus says, who's here. And you're not paying attention. Well, if you're familiar with the Bible, you've got to be thinking, well, Solomon's the wisest man who's ever lived. How could somebody be greater than Solomon? Turns out it's actually not that hard. Because remember, that's the thing about wisdom. I can be really wise about what you need to do. But my own blind spots, man, it's hard to see those in the mirror. And just a chapter after this you know, the pinnacle of Israel's story comes this haunting passage in 1 Kings 11. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughters, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonites, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told Israelites, you must not intermarry with them, not because it's of ethnicity, but because they worship other gods. They will surely, what's that language? Turn, that's path language. They will turn your heart after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wife led him astray on a different path. As Solomon grew old, his wife again turned his heart 
after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. And that's exactly what they did. They turned his heart. The greatest king in Israel's history would sow seeds that would lead to his nation's absolute destruction. You know, for the rest of their history, they would struggle, Israel would struggle with worshiping false gods. And not just any false gods, but gods like Molech, who demanded child sacrifice, and Ashtoreth, the goddess of the earth and lust. I don't know why God has made the world the way it is. I don't know why there's cancer and terminal disease. I don't know why there's war and famine and plague and drought. But I do know the Christian level, the Christian story is trying to say on some level, the world is the way it is because we chose it. Remember the beginning with garden, in the garden with Adam and Eve. He tells them they can have a choice. You can partner with me in, in the, the flourishing of the world, or you can eat from this tree of knowledge of good and evil. And God says, don't, don't do that, because if you do it, you will certainly invite death into your life. But that's it. God doesn't put up any fence around the tree. God gives them the ultimate gift of being able to choose the life they want. And ultimately, they choose the one thing God said not to do, even though they knew there would be consequences. And then God comes to them and curses them. Is that right? I think it says so much about the way we read the Bible that we think what God does in Genesis 3 is curse them. Rabbis actually call that observations. God is observing the way reality has changed. They will now have pain in childbearing. They will find that all creation has changed, even the ground, and that while their work will bear fruit, it will be filled with thorns. And now, since dust they were made, to dust they will return. And it's easy to be hard on Adam and Eve, but is human history not just one long commentary on people doing that exact same thing? Did God really say? Can God really be trusted? But God, it looks so great. But God, he's the man of my dreams. But God, I mean, she's wonderful, but God, the money is right there for the taking, and no one would ever know. What is the life of Solomon but one parable of the same old story? Because you know what? God gave Solomon everything he could have wanted, and it turns out it wasn't enough. That was the thing that the story of Solomon opened up with that I think wisdom wants us to be real honest with. God asked Solomon, what do you want? What do you want? God, in the Bible, one of the worst things God can do is give you exactly what you want. So be honest about what it is you want. You know, St. Augustine, in his famous book, Confessions, he actually has this section where he talks about the worst thing he thinks he's ever done. And if you've read St. Augustine, his confessions are pretty, I mean, honest. He lived a really, really... Um, uh, sex-ridden, driven life. He was, uh, you know, with a lot of women. He had done a lot of bad things. But he says the worst thing he ever done, he had ever done is that when he was a little boy, he stole pears from his neighbor's pear tree. And again, if you've read the book, you're like, that is not the worst thing you've done, Augustine. But he says the reason it was the worst thing I've ever done is because I wasn't hungry. And my, we had, my family, we had our own pear tree. 
I didn't steal the pears because I needed it. I stole the pears because I wanted to rebel. I wanted to be bad. You can call that whatever you want, original sin, depravity, or whatever, but the best word, in my opinion, is foolishness. Because God isn't cursing us. God didn't curse Adam and Eve. What God did is give us what we want. God has made the world in such a way where we get what we want. We reap, in the words of the Bible, we reap what we sow. There are consequences to this life. There are consequences of going against God and going against the way God made the world. And and this is really important to get. Uh, In the words of Richard Rohr, you are not so much punished for your sins. You are punished by your sins. And this is why wisdom is so important, because over time... Every day, you're making decisions that add up and lead you in a certain direction. So started yesterday by saying the average person makes 70 decisions a day. 70 times a day that you decide to do this and not that, to go here and not there. And that adds up to something like 20, 25,000 decisions a year. And those decisions largely are going to determine what kind of person you are and what kind of life you have. All the, think about your own life so far. All the money you spent or saved all the people you decided to date or not to date, the major you decided to have or whether or not you would go to college or grad school or what career you would have. And if we're not attending to those kind of decisions, we will drift, our life will drift in a direction that we never wanted it to. Solomon never sat down and said, you know what I'd like? I would love to have my nation, my legacy be that my nation would be carried off in exile. I'd love to see my people carted off in a Babylonian Uh, by Babylonian soldiers. And Adam and Eve never sat down and said, you know what we'd like? We'd like to see one of our sons rise up and kill the other son and him be sent in exile so we would never see him again. And you didn't sit down and decide, you know what I would like? I would like to be addicted to that. Or I would like to be lonely and not have deep friendships. Or I would like to not, I'd like to be trapped in debt. The problem isn't that you wanted the life that you have, it's that we didn't choose against it. We actually chose for it one direction-setting decision at a time, but (laughs) I can't tell you how much I wanted to tell you this this whole time. That is not the end of your story. Because despite our choices, God hasn't abandoned us. So when I first was working on this series, I was talking with Randy Harris about it. And he said, you know what the greatest problem with Proverbs is? That's my Randy Harris impression. Mm. He says, you know what the greatest problem in Proverbs is? And I said, is it Job's friends? You know, people saying, you, you deserve this. You've got this coming to you. He said, no, that's the second greatest problem. The greatest problem in Proverbs is, any guesses? It's godless. Um, which is not what I expected him to say. Because I see God all over the book of Proverbs. God made the world this way. You reap what you sow. And fearing the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, of the beginning of humility and wisdom. But his point was, and it's a good point, that if we're not careful, we can think when we read Proverbs, we can think that what we're looking at is karma. That basically, you, you know, what goes around comes around. And if your life is a mess, then it's because of you. Which is often true, and sometimes not. But, and this is the... When, this is how, why Proverbs matters. It's so powerful to me. It's, it's powerful in the gospel kinds of ways. Because the way I read the entire Bible is through the lens of one story. 
the prodigal son. Remember that? Jesus is telling that to a bunch of religious leaders. They're critiquing him because he's hanging out with the wrong kinds of people. That tend to be a pretty common critique of them for him. He's hanging out with people who had made a lot of bad decisions with their life. People who had been foolish with all the things Proverbs warns us about. People who are foolish with their sexuality, foolish with their money and with their relationships. The Pharisees are mad at Jesus because he's hanging out with those people. And so he tells them the story of a father who has two sons. Coincidentally, this is actually Midrash or commentary on the story of Israel itself. Remember, Jacob and Esau. He's telling the Pharisees, you're playing the wrong role in your own story. But the story is this father who has two sons, and the younger one goes to his dad and says, Dad, can I have my inheritance? Basically, in an honor-shame society, he's saying, Dad, I don't care what it looks like. You can't be dead soon enough for me, so let me cash in. And his dad, much like God, gives him what he wants. And he goes off to a far country, and he spends his money on all the things that the father in the Proverbs warns the son against. And finally, he reaps what he sows. He gets the consequences of the choice that he made. And while he's in the middle of those consequences, and this is what God is hoping, he remembers his dad and turns around, charts a new path. And the father, who never stopped looking for his foolish son, runs out and covers over his shame and throws a party for this fool who has found wisdom. And then, obviously, the religious characters in this story are being played by the older brother. The older brother comes in and starts complaining about, hey, what are you thinking? Let him stay with the consequences of his decision. And this is where you really get the heart of God and why God made the universe the way it did, the way he did. He says, of course we're going to throw a party. We have to throw a party because this son of ours, this son of mine was lost and now he's found. And now you realize this is why God gives us what we want when we choose against him. Not because God is mean, not because God is vindictive and trying to pay us back, but because God wants us to come back to him, really. God hopes our consequences force us to remember the Father, remember what the Father is like, and turn around. Jesus, in this moment, in telling this story, is the Father on the lookout for prodigal fools. Okay, I've got just a couple of seconds to be able to say this. You know when the triumphal entry story? You want to know who everybody in Israel would have been thinking of when Jesus does that? Go back to 1 Kings with me. When David is dying, um, there's another son of his, Adonijah, who says, you know what, I'd like to be king. So he kind of throws a coup, and he starts proclaiming king. And then Bathsheba goes to David and says, hey, didn't you say Solomon was going to be king? And so Solomon... Solomon, David says, yeah, let's, uh, let's make sure everybody knows that. Puts him on his own donkey, rides him through the center of Jerusalem. And they say, long live King Solomon. 
It's a story in Israel's history about there being a pretender to the throne, on the throne. And the real rightful king comes marching through Jerusalem on a donkey. That's why they're saying Hosanna. Because they know what Jesus is saying about Herod in that moment. Really powerful story, but it's not just a battle cry. It's the fa- Jesus the Father on the lookout for fools. And <laughs> this is so great. He found one. We don't know much about this guy. We know he lived in a really rough time. And maybe he was forced into a lot of choices, but like us, he had also some measure of freedom. And at some point, maybe again he was a product of the world he grew up in, a product of his own bad choices, but probably like most of us, a mixture of both. At some point, after years of trouble with the law and trying to feed his family, he thinks somebody's got to do something about this. Romans tax us at half of what we make. We can't, we can't live like this. Maybe that's what drove him to terrorism or insurrection. What All we know about him is that he was branded a thief and a rebel and that they stripped him naked and they spread out his arms and they did to him what they did to every insurrectionist. They crucified him low enough so that his friends and family could see his face as he was shamed and dehumanized and murdered for the purposes of the state. But on that day, unlike the thousands of other crucifixions that happened that year, he was crucified next to this popular Jewish rabbi. He knew this because above his head, they had nailed the announcement Jesus, King of the Jews. He's probably surprised to see him there. But this guy who had made, just like you, 70 decisions a day, 20,000 a year, this guy who had made decision after decision that had ultimately led him to the place that he was currently at and going to die, finds himself with one more decision. I know, right? And it was enough. He turns to Jesus and he says, Look, I don't I don't get it. But when you go into your kingdom, would you remember me? And of all his decisions, that was his best one. And it's here we find out that in the economy of God, grace trumps wisdom. Not the consequences, but the ends. I mean, think about it. That prodigal son, he can't unspend that money. He can't unmake those memories, but money's never been that important to God anyway. And you can always make New memories. In the economy of God, no matter what kind of mess we have made of our lives and our own foolish choices, you are always just one direction-setting decision away 
from the realization that grace trumps wisdom, which is why on the cross they put on Jesus a crown of what? Of our consequences. From the fall. From sin. Because He takes our foolishness on Himself. Our curse is God's crown. Jesus is wisdom, but He is more than just wisdom. He is the one who is greater than Solomon. Praise be to God. He is the door where you thought there was only wall. He is what comes after deserving. And while He may be like a king, kings are not like Him. Let's pray. God, we thank You for this grace that sustains us even now. There's not a person in this room who when we look back on our own life, we don't remember and recognize our own foolish choices. Some of us are in the middle of those right now. Would you, God, in the middle of our consequences, remind us of your nature and your character? Would you not let our pride kick in? That pride that blames and, and points out the fingers of how other people are responsible. But would you, God, in the moments where we are eating with the pigs, would you remind us of your character and nature and how you are always one direction-setting decision away? God, thank you for your grace, grace that sustains our life and holds it together even now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, go in peace.